many psychologists, therefore, when they saw the results of this study being published, uh, were immediately curious as to how, you know, what, 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 the, what the details looked like. And um, the PACE trial uh, is, uh, has, has, has actually proven to be very uh, controversial and very beleaguered because research methodologists and scientists who are experienced in conducting um, uh, you know, uh, empirical research um, have not so much debunked the study, but have severely critiqued it. Uh, so what I write about in the PACE trial is largely secondary reporting of that. Um, there um, are many, many flaws, methodological flaws with that particular study. And uh, the study, in my view, in conclusion, um, is an example of weak science and the conclusions uh, are not uh, appropriately grounded. Um, and some of the flaws are entirely um, destructive to good science. Uh, so the fact that that study is seen as the, the basis for uh, therapy recommendations um, is an example of how bad science can damage people's lives. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, and in this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with Brian Hughes, author of Psychology in Crisis. From the cover of Brian's book, it says, Throughout the history of psychology, attempting to objectively measure the highly dynamic phenomenon of human behavior has given rise to an underappreciated margin of error. Today, as the discipline experiences increasing difficulty in reproducing the results of its own studies, such error not only threatens to undermine psychology's credibility, but also leaves an indelible question. Is psychology actually a field of irreproducible science? So how does Brian's book fit with medical error? Well, I wanted to interview Brian because he connects the dots between bad psychological science and how that can lead to medical error and patient harm. 
We talk about an infamous research trial out of the UK and how its very poor methodology, coupled with what has been characterized as fraudulent behavior by the researchers, has led to millions of patients around the globe with the biological disease myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME for short, to be subjected to medical harm, abuse, and trauma. These ME patients are often prescribed treatment that is actually contraindicated and makes them more ill, sometimes permanently disabling them. As one ME researcher noted, and I'm paraphrasing her, they came to the doctor with ME, they left with PTSD. This bad science by psychology researchers who have built their reputations, their careers, and their bank accounts on their fraudulent research and harmful treatment have embedded medical error on a global scale by negatively influencing healthcare systems everywhere and misinforming physicians about the true biological nature of ME. Brian's book shows how bad psychological science can lead to institutionalized and embedded medical error that permeates our healthcare systems worldwide. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe and leave a kind comment on one of the podcast platforms like Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. You can also become a monthly patron of the podcast and help us share our stories and find solutions. You can go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly supporter. If you need counseling support for your own experience with medical error or living with a chronic illness or having LGBT issues or any of other of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling session with me at my website, remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Brian Hughes, author of psychology in crisis um yeah so let's start out uh in early in your life where did you grow up what was your childhood like and how did you get into academics yeah that's a a good place to start i guess uh so i'm i'm from ireland and i was born and raised in ireland and i was born and raised in rural ireland uh, a small town. Uh, when I grew up there, it had a population of no more than 2,000 people. Uh, so I went to a traditional uh, country school. Um, uh, education was highly valued. Uh, this was in the 1970s. Uh, the Irish economy was, was quite weak. Ireland was uh, not a confident nation. So education was considered very, very important. And I guess I was bookish and good at school and uh, stuck with it. And um, at the end of uh, secondary school, I attended university in the city, which is 25 miles away. 
and took up uh, psychology as a subject uh, in, a, in, a, in a humanities and arts degree and um, uh, really took it from there. So I just um, a very traditional educational route in terms of subject selection, subject choice. Uh, what was it about psychology that attracted you to that field of study? Yeah, that's it, it, it. There is a little bit to it, I suppose, because um, you know uh, Ireland is was then quite a conservative place, and psychology is a bit uh, new age um, uh, relative to say the traditional professions that parents might aspire to uh, uh, for their children, and uh, so psychology for me it had a kind of a philosophical bent, it had a kind of scientific bent, and there was a bit of a, um, a kind of a uh, novelty to taking psychology as a subject, instead of say something like accountancy, which I think my parents would have preferred in terms of career options. So I was interested in human behavior, I was interested in ideas, I was interested in culture, and I think maybe because I come from a small place, I was interested in diversity, Oddly enough, I was fascinated by by people who were not like me and people who were not like the people around me, uh, and I was curious as to the impact of, uh, of of culture and upbringing on people's behaviour, and curious about our presumptions and our assumptions and our stereotypes. Um, and uh, I immersed myself in psychology, and I was um, very motivated by the fact that. Psychology was a scientific discipline. Uh, it was an evidence-based discipline. And uh, it's something that I saw within psychology as a value system in terms of prioritizing evidence over opinion. And this is something that actually came to be uh, something I became very passionate about uh, because not all psychologists see that moral dimension to their field. Um, other people have different reasons to be interested in psychology and they do it differently as a result. Okay, and so you've taken the academic stream in psychology as opposed to the clinical stream? Yes, uh, essentially so because, and again, this reflects my, uh, my interests. So I see psychology as a, uh, a science, as uh, the science of behavior. Um, the science of cognition and opinion and personality and social uh, behavior, of course, but behavior broadly defined. Uh, and uh, yes, the clinical field to me, the applied side of things, um, is the use of psychology for these purposes. Um, and of course, it's very important, but I think it's a different set of skills uh, it's not the same as science, it's not the same as research, and being a good clinician doesn't automatically make you a good scientist. Uh, so yes, very much so. Having said that, my areas of research are of great clinical relevance. So most of my research focuses on emotional stress, psychological stress, and the coping um, um, that people have to um, perform with stress. And in particular, the impact of stress on the human body, um, most particularly uh, the impact of stress on cardiovascular health and immune health. Oh, really? So you're really crossing over from the psychological into the biological? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and um, 
again, uh, motivated primarily by the evidence-based uh, side of that and the potential for evidence to be brought to bear on what would otherwise be very woolly ideas. For example, throughout history, people have had this notion that uh, you know, sadness causes ill health and you can die of a broken heart and all of these ideas they appear in literature, they appear in mythology. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by the sustained impact of elevated physiological stress arousal on the smooth running of the cardiovascular system because there is uh, a, a, an evidence-based or an empirical um, case to be made that sustained emotional distress will carry a physical load or will have a physical impact in the body, but that can be quantified and can be studied and it can be tested experimentally and so on. It doesn't have to be down to you know, literary metaphors and dying of broken hearts and so on. It can be very, very, very much broken down quantitatively. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> we talk about this stuff all day, but we really want to talk about your your new book. And uh, I'd like to know what led you or directed you, motivated you toward this particular the topic of this book. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mentioned earlier that um, psychology is something of a passion for me in terms of my appreciation that psychology is an evidence-based science and that all of the questions we ask remain philosophical or anecdotal until we have data um, and we can use data to, 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 um, uh, to, to address the questions and resolve the uncertainties. Uh, psychology has always been like that. That's what psychology is for. Uh, otherwise, people can just talk among themselves and come up with their own prejudices and tell the world how people behave and why they behave in particular ways. And it's all opinion. Uh, uh, I think psychology is an interesting field because it, it, it is tempting for um, all humans to dabble in psychology on an amateur level. Everybody is happy to discuss uh, other people's behavior, um, social problems, um, you know, decisions that people have taken and so on. Um, everybody, uh, every, any ordinary human being is interested in those things and people at the dinner table will talk about those things. Very few people at the dinner table will talk about nuclear physics or quantum physics or something obscure um, in those terms. So psychology attracts a lot of um, lay effort. And my sense was that um, uh, a large number of psychologists who would be formally trained and, and working professionally, even as academics and researchers, would succumb to that lay effort now and again. And um, uh, so I would, um, I would be uh, concerned that, uh, that uh, psychologists, not all psychologists buy into this evidence-based approach to psychology. And over the course of 20 years, um, uh, mixing with psychologists and reading psychology and so on, uh, I became quite concerned that there was quite a lot of that uh, about. Uh, so psychology is only valuable insofar as it's seen as an evidence-based discipline. Uh, the kind of uh, lay psychology or um, sort of the comforting version of psychology that uh, we can help you change and we can look at 
interventions and we don't need to think about science and data. Uh, that, 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 that has become more common and more popular and, uh, in my view, threatens to undermine psychology and what's good about psychology. So I decided to write about it. And you called your book Psychology and Crisis. Yes, and to be fair, and this is a bit behind the curtain, um, uh, we had a, uh, a working title. My, uh, the publisher and I had a working title for this book for a long time. And it was psychology's methodological crises. This was my concept. Um, but I completely acknowledge that that is not very snappy. It's also ambiguous. And um, so we, we had to brainstorm on a title. And uh, I wondered whether psychology and crisis might be seen as uh, nihilistic or fatalistic. But um, I was reassured that it was provocative. So the publishers were happy with that concept. So I, I, I said, Yes, let's go with that. And so am I understanding that this bifurcation is really along the lines of the academic psychologists and the clinical psychologists? There's the ones who are developing these lay? Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's, that's not unreasonable. Um, and I think it begins there. I think there's, there's certainly um, a way of looking at psychology in, at that, 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 yes, it overlaps with that idea. But a lot of clinical practitioners are very evidence-based and they're very committed to that and are very frustrated by any uh, failure to respect evidence or to prioritize evidence-based practice. And, and likewise, a lot of academic psychologists are quite tolerant of the um, uh, kind of looser approach and I would say psychology is one of those disciplines where even within the academic um, subset of psychologists, there is quite a range. And there are the hard scientists at one end of the spectrum, and there are the hard anti-scientists at the other. And uh, lots of psychologists are somewhere in between. And maybe it's an example of where it's not good to be in the mid-range. But there are, um, there are lots of psychologists working in physical health in particular, so-called health psychology, uh, where I think um, scientific rigor is not top of the agenda. Um, helping people is top of the agenda. And that's, that's the enemy of good science, in my opinion. The road to good intentions is, no, what's that? Yeah, that's something, I think that's reasonable, yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 the road to hell is uh, paved with good intentions, I think. Uh, um, yeah. Um, I think that is a real risk and it's a very interesting psychological uh, question because it's about finding meaning again. Uh, clinicians um, and the dilemma of wanting to help people uh, and that interfering with good science. Right. So in relation to psychologists in particular, uh, there are, uh, you know, a lot of psychologists are involved in studying uh, physical illness and, and, and medical problems and uh, my observation is that quite a lot of them are very committed to helping people and to finding ways of helping people. Um, but the dilemma or the risk is that, uh, uh, you know, because science is a slow process and an incremental process, and in some ways uh, a boring process, that rushing uh, anything um, to try to help people it undermines good science. 
So a lot of what I saw in the psychology of physical health uh, was was not good science. And this particularly, given my area of interest, um, the impact of stress on physical well-being, um, I became quite concerned that uh, that the that you know uh, the basic science approach was taken by a minority, uh, and quite a lot of folks who have come to dominate the field of health and health psychology um, uh, seem to be um, not interested in in in, in the uh, the rigorous science or the question of scientific rigor. Uh, so there's quite a lot of uh, research that takes place in public health and in health psychology and behavioral medicine and so on um, that is conducted with good intentions but not with great uh, great rigor. And uh, the classic dilemma is that um, that that uh, that choice between um, the slow, reliable uh, process or the fast, unreliable process. And a lot of psychologists are keen for quick for solutions to be found quickly, and will veer towards the fast, unreliable version. So, how has your book been received, both within your academic colleagues and amongst the general population? Uh, yes, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it certainly uh, has grabbed uh, a lot of attention, and. Um, so I, my sense is that, say, among the general public and among uh, non-psychology readership, uh, the feedback has been very positive, and I've been in many ways humbled and, and bowled over uh, by uh, the, the, the nature of the feedback and, and the places it has come from. Um, uh, and uh, without getting into the uh, nitty-gritty of sales figures and so on, um, it has it has featured well uh, in around the world actually, and uh, so it's, it's been quite a, a stunning kind of reaction in, in certain respects. Uh, in terms of psychologists, uh, most particularly academic and scientific psychologists or health psychologists and so on, uh, interestingly, the, the the feedback has been has been very positive, um, and, and, and there have been some folks who have been kind of quiet conspicuously silent on the matter, um, and one or two who have uh, written to me at different times, actually to compliment the book, but maybe to criticize something else I've written about, um, and trying to get their head around the fact that I champion good science, but somehow I fail to see their study as being good. And uh, I've had a couple of, uh, of, 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 of correspondences like that, but actually the book has been um, uh, praised uh, throughout. The closest I got to faint praise was uh, an editor of a publication who who suggested to me uh, that uh, this was old news, that this has been dealt with in, in the past. Everybody knows that psychology is in crisis, and uh, so had, did I have anything else to say? Um, that was as close as I got to, a, 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 in my view at least, to a, a pushback. Um, uh, but I think that I ended up writing about uh, the risk of um, of prematurely declaring the crisis in psychology to be historical, uh, the risk of, uh, of of assuming we've dealt with it just because we've talked about it, and um, uh, so that was actually quite useful in the end. Uh, I've been asked to give uh, talks in different conferences. Um, um, uh, 
different places around the world. So I'm uh, giving a talk at the British Psychological Society annual conference uh, uh, in a couple of months. Um, so I think in general terms, yeah, uh, I've been happy with how the book has been received, uh, but I'm very mindful of the fact that not everybody will share their unhappiness. True, very true. Mm. So one of the chapters in your book covers the PACE trial. And uh, can you tell folks who are not familiar at all with that trial what, what that's mm. about and the problems that you found with it? Yeah. Yeah, so, so the PACE trial uh, is uh, uh, a research study conducted uh, a number of years ago now uh, over a multi-year period attempting to test uh, interventions or treatments for uh, biologic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. We we'll call it ME. Um, uh, a condition that is very debilitating and that your listeners are probably aware of uh, and the concept was that uh, uh, by uh, providing treatments that include uh, uh, behavioral and cognitive um, uh, components, and uh, that includes CBT and it includes um, uh, graded exercise therapy, that these therapies alone might be useful in uh, improving the lives and indeed uh, uh, the treatment of people with ME. Um, and so in the United Kingdom, the study was conducted. It was a large scale study by any sense. There was over 600 people with ME uh, were part of the study. And uh, uh, the authors claimed that uh, they had indeed um, uh, successfully treated the condition with these largely behavioral and psychological therapies. Um, what is controversial about this is on the one hand, it seems implausible because um, exercise therapies are notoriously difficult for people with ME and many people with ME say that they're actually very destructive. Um, the idea that cognitive therapies might uh, somehow uh, reverse what is a very um, a vivid physical illness is also something to be treated with suspicion or at least to be um, considered an extraordinary claim, therefore requiring extraordinary evidence. Uh, uh, many psychologists, therefore, when they saw the results of this study being published, uh, were immediately curious as to how, you know, what, 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 the, what the details looked like. And um, the PACE trial uh, is, uh, has, has actually proven to be very uh, controversial and very beleaguered because research methodologists and scientists who are experienced in conducting um, uh, you know, uh, empirical research um, have not so much debunked the study, but have severely critiqued it. Uh, so what I write about in the PACE trial is largely secondary reporting of that. Um, there um, are many, many flaws, methodological flaws with that particular study. And uh, the study, in my view, in conclusion, um, is an example of weak science, and the conclusions uh, are not uh, appropriately grounded. Um, and some of the flaws are entirely um, destructive to good science. Uh, so the fact that that study is seen as uh, the basis for uh, therapy recommendations um, is an example of how bad science can 
damage people's lives. Uh, without getting into too technical detail of the methodological shortcomings of the patient yeah. trial, uh, what would uh, an example of one of the most egregious uh, aspects of it be? Well, yes. Well, uh, the, the the biggest problem with the PACE trial really is that it's, it's conception. Uh, the PACE trial is um, the, 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 a trial that is based on giving people different interventions and then largely asking them how they feel about their health at the end of the intervention. So in other words, the key outcome variables are measured through self-report. There were other outcomes. Um, the initial design of the study included all sorts of variables, but most of them were dropped. And when you look at the final reports that have emerged in the literature, the key outcomes are based on self-report. In other words, the participant gives a rating of their own health or a report of their own health at the end of it. Uh, in any study uh, where you uh, intervene with human beings uh, uh, to test a therapy, it would ordinarily be the case that you would blind the participants. That's the experimental term for you would not tell the participants what was going on. You would tell them there is a study, there is a therapy. You might be in the therapy group, you might be in some placebo type group or some alternative group. In the PACE trial, the participants who were being given the target therapies were told they are in the target therapy group. And they were told this therapy is really good. And they were told this therapy is evidence-based. And they were told this therapy is really effective. And then they were asked, how do you feel now? And the people in that group said, we feel we've got a good therapy, we feel good. Um, not only that, the therapy, this cognitive behavior therapy, is based on teaching people how to find benefits from their situations, and teaching people how to talk about their predicament in a positive rather than a negative way. So at the end of the study, uh, participants who received the cognitive behavior therapy were well practiced because they had been taught to uh, see the jar as half full instead of half empty. And when they were asked, how is the jar? They said it was half full, whereas everybody else said it was half empty. So there were basic psychological problems there where participants were not, were biased towards reporting improvements in their well-being uh, that loaded the result in a way that made it look like the therapy had improved people's well-being. Uh, so in short, we would say that is, uh, blinding was not used uh, when blinding was required, and self-report was relied upon when self-report shouldn't be relied upon. So the combination of a non-blinded trial with self-report data is just elementary. It's just an elementary problem. You would teach that in first-year undergraduate psychology you would give people examples of how to design a bad so how the study should not be designed. And uh, this actually is a very simple example of a bad design. The, the, the participants should have been blinded, the therapists should have been blinded, and, and something other than self-report data should be relied upon. You cannot have both. 
So uh, there was no objective data showing any physical improvement. They were only relying on subjective data in which essentially the participants had been taught how to respond to those questions. Yes, and even if the participants hadn't been taught that, there would still be, as, a, as cognitive behavior therapy, which is the purpose of cognitive behavior therapy, uh, the participants would still have been in uh, the mode of making meaning, and they'd have been told they had received an effective therapy. They'd have been told um, that the therapy is uh, evidence-based and various other things. Um, and so their opinions would have been contaminated anyway, even if the therapy was, you know, something other than cognitive behavior therapy. So the very fact that there was that blinding was not used is an elementary problem in a therapy a therapy study where self-report data is is the main outcome. Um, the, when when the data were eventually scrutinized by independent researchers. There were all sorts of um, uh, hints um, that uh, uh, that had objective measures been used, the, 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 the therapies would have been found to have been ineffective. Um, so there were various tests of, um, of physical endurance and so on, uh, which showed no improvement, um, or appeared to show no improvement uh, in, in the therapy group compared to control groups. Um, uh, there was an analysis done of disability payments. Disability payments were, were marginally higher after the therapy was administered rather than before. There was no evidence to suggest that people had physically recovered from their illness. There was only evidence to suggest that people reported recovery um, in self-report terms when they knew that they were in a therapy that was supposed to work. That's, that's really the outcome. So if there were such elementary errors in the designing of this research, how did it get so many multiple millions of pounds in funding to carry it out? Yes, um, that's a good question. But we have to recall that the multiple millions of pounds are committed before the study is done, rather than, you know, um, uh, after. And, and sometimes the due diligence required to identify flaws, even overarching flaws or elementary flaws, um, isn't sufficient. And, 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 and these things can um, appear very obvious with the benefit of hindsight. You'd like to think that a, a, an appropriately constituted uh, grant approval body would uh, include uh, observers who were well-practiced at identifying bad studies um, that is simply not always the case. Uh, so when a grant agency is, uh, is, is distributing uh, research funds, um, it, it, it's, it's not always the case. In fact, it's seldom the case that, uh, uh, the, that people are on that uh, review board uh, with the sole job of rooting out bad science. Uh, they're usually asking questions like, what will your study achieve? Uh, what is the cost-benefit analysis logistically in terms of resource use? Um, you know, uh, what, how does your study build on previous studies? Uh, how does your study change our understanding? of? You know, the, the grant awarding bodies rarely test the competence of the 
research designers. They are asking questions about how important the study is and how exciting the study is and how useful the study is and how much money the study will save. Um, and those considerations, in my experience, are, are, are the primary ones. Um, there's very little um, in a grant awarding um, uh, context where agencies are really scrutinizing the quality of studies. And if you actually just put alongside that, the, 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 um, uh, the reality of peer review um, that in a country the size of the UK in particular, uh, we have to assume that the authors who proposed uh, the trial um, uh, were, were sufficiently high profile that the people who reviewed the trial uh, knew who they were. And that carries with it immediately all sorts of um, uh, influences and expectations. And you think, well, these people are high profile researchers. This must be a great study. Let's see how important it is. And nobody ever stopped to say, um, might, might this study be bad? Should we just test? Should we just look at that? Um, that, 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 that voice is seldom heard in the grant awarding um, context. I'm going to segue into a, a more recent paper that you wrote because it sounds like you're touching on that topic. And I think your paper is called The Triumph of Eminence-Based Medicine. Yes, and, and for full disclosure, I mean, it's really a blog post, so it's not a peer-reviewed uh, uh, publication. It's, it's an opinion piece. Um, but yes, yeah, that's right, eminence-based medicine. And that relates to this concept of, um, of the, 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 the very important researcher. And uh, the very important researcher um, is, is seen as automatically producing quality work. Um, uh, and therefore, it's considered bad manners to question the quality of the work. Um, and the very important researcher is seen as a very important researcher by grant awarding bodies, by research ethics boards, by journal editors, by practitioners in the front line, um, and by people who are uh, conflict averse, who don't like arguments, and they hear that the authors are being criticized, um, and they don't like people criticizing each other, uh, and they side with the very important researcher rather than with the critic. Uh, it, it's um, this, this, we're all familiar with the idea of evidence-based medicine, but the idea that medical practice can be influenced by eminence, by professional eminence, um, it's a very real um, uh, uh, consequence, and it's a, it's a very it's a, it's a feature of of this particular um, topic of uh, how the PACE trial uh, and associated trials are are used and uh, and are defended by. By I suppose the establishment um, and how, how how criticism is uh, is rejected, um, not because of the substance of the criticism, but because of criticism being deemed to be inappropriate, um, just in principle. So, if the PACE trial, the evidence uh, was re-examined by independent folks and found. Uh, all of these methodological flaws with the PACE trial, and then your book comes out and you have an entire chapter on it, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding the trial. Where is that trial in the process of being retracted? 
Ah, yes. Um, well, the R word, if you like, the retraction word. Um, I don't believe it's in the process of being retracted in any sense, uh, just to be literal about it. I mean, the, 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 the study has, has produced a number of publications, but two primary publications um, that report the findings, um, neither of which I think are, are being considered in any way for, for retraction. Uh, and, and I suppose we have to um, um, put that all in the balance in the sense that uh, uh, not every bad study is retracted ultimately. Um, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of studies uh, published every year in the behavioral sciences and, 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 and social sciences and medical sciences and so on. Perhaps even millions of such studies. But the number that get retracted are very, very small. I mean, five or six hundred papers in the academic literature per year get retracted. So, um, uh, retraction is a, is a very unusual thing to happen. The PACE trial, uh, far from being retracted um, because of the, I suppose, the particular dynamic that is built up and the defensiveness of uh, the people who do the PACE trial and everybody linked to them in professional circles. Um, uh, if anything, people are digging in on, on, on the PACE trial and, and defending it and reinforcing that in various ways with different kinds of um, new policies or new positions um, that promote the, the therapies concerned, um, uh, despite the, uh, the, the controversy wasn't changing because of the controversy. So if you're taking on these establishment type figures that uh, have quite a bit of power, um, what sort of pushback, if any, have you received and what sort of concerns, if any, do you have about uh, your career? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I don't think we're in that uh, territory at all. I mean, uh, it is well recognized. I mean, I'm not in a minority of one here. And as I say, uh, when you write a book, you're, you're, you're very frequently um, engaged in a kind of secondary reporting. You're just describing the scene as it is. Um, and there are quite a lot of people who criticize uh, the PACE trial and criticize that whole uh, approach uh, to uh, to ME, this uh, biopsychosocial approach. Um, so I'm simply reporting on that war, on the war correspondence, if you like. Um, and maybe I have a particular profile for doing so, but if I were hit by a bus, uh, you know, that the, the war would continue without me. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, in terms of my own career, there, there is no um, uh, risk at all. I mean, in a sense, I'm promoting research uh, rigor um, in psychology. I think that is uh, that that's what I'm uh, duty bound to do, and what I'm uh, measured on um, in my profession. And um, I think you'll find that. People who are in the research rigor um, field uh, are, are are quite there's quite a consensus there. This is a bad trial. I mean, this trial appears in textbooks as an example of a bad trial. It's it's the people who are in the applied field who are looking for an off-the-shelf therapy to provide to potentially 250,000 people in the UK alone. Um, you know, what can we do for these people? 
uh, the, the, they're the folks who are digging in around uh, the PACE trial, not the scientists community or the research community uh, per se. And, and there's an interesting cultural uh, 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 divide as well in North America, in the United States, um, the Institute of, of, of Medicine uh, uh, is, is a, a, you know, declared AME to be unambiguously a physical illness that requires some kind of physical um, intervention. And in, in the absence of, 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 of an effective intervention requires further physical-based research. Um, whereas the UK um, seems to be very much in the sway of the biopsychosocial um, uh, sort of uh, subset of the health professions. And, and they are the, uh, the, the groups that are deferred to for advice on what to do about ME. I would argue the very fact that two entirely different approaches exist in two different countries tells you a lot about how um, the, the, the social construction of this condition um, matters rather than the underlying biology of it in terms of these differences of opinion. It's clearly a matter of opinion, not a matter of fact. All right. Uh, so that was a good, very concise way of putting it as a, a social construct. Uh, I'm wondering about your thoughts on the BPS model generally, and for folks who aren't familiar with that acronym, BPS is biopsychosocial, and also the, what I'm going to call derivatives of that, the central yeah. sensitization syndrome, medi mm -hmm. medically unexplained symptoms, all of these other psychosomatic terms. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, it is interesting um, to me, um, in terms of just the terminology, the, the, the idea of a biopsychosocial explanation for anything was originally um, conceived of as um, a way of making explanations of biomedicine more sophisticated, to take account of behavioral factors, psychological factors, and social factors. So if you're trying to predict heart disease, Yes, you can test people's blood pressure and, 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 and atherosclerosis and cholesterol levels and what have you. But you can also test, are they poor? Um, are they living in social isolation? Do they have work stress? Because all of these things are predictors of additional risk of cardiovascular illness. So the idea of accounting for bio, psychological and social factors as well as biological factors was originally a sophisticated idea, an idea that helped us explain at the population level how illness happens and where it happens. Um, the, the, the idea, however, that you can replace the biological with the psychosocial is, 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 is something of a fallacy. And I think what we call in the ME uh, world, the BPS model, the biopsychosocial model, refers very much to this trend where some psychologists or behavioral scientists feel that actually the psychosocial bit displaces the biological bit. So we don't need the biological bit, we just need the psychosocial bit. And they try to describe a purely physical illness in purely psychosocial terms. Um, and that version of the BPS model, I think, is, it doesn't even fit the acronym BPS, in my opinion, because there, clearly there's no respect for the B part. Um, 
so uh, that to me, I think, is, is, is a runaway train of bad reasoning um, that is out of control in, um, certainly in the United Kingdom, um, the psychological world for a very long time. Uh, I wouldn't be um, in a position to give the full history of these things, but it is not unlike uh, how the psychoanalytic uh, point of view, the Freudian point of view, has sort of taken hold in a lot of places, a lot of countries with relation to uh, how physical illnesses or psychiatric illnesses are caused in a way that is very hard to shift when, even when the facts are known. Um, and, and, and the idea that you can psychologize everything, which, which you know, in the BPS debate has this uh, hallmark of the Freudian uh, approach, that you can just psychologize everything and everything has a psychological cause and therefore a psychological intervention will cure everything. Um, that, that is a very seductive idea, um, but uh, some countries and some societies and some professional groups have completely um, dispensed with it a long time ago. But in the UK, I think the legacy remains. And this idea that you can psychologize the physical illness, um, we will look back on in the future uh, psychologists and others will look back on as, as, as a kind of preposterous notion. But uh, currently, we're still in that place that where, where the idea has currency. So how do you, as a passionate academic psychologist, reconcile your passion with such a large uh, section of your uh, colleagues practicing bad science? Yes, that's the question I get asked quite a, uh, quite a bit actually but I mean um, again um, if we just step out of the uh, the particular controversy here and look at psychology as a whole psychology is an area where research methods are seen as very very important very core uh, so a psychology degree in the United Kingdom in Ireland in Canada in the United States you need to have a, a research methods core to the training um, and it has been recognized for decades that you cannot have psychology research without research rigor and without indeed quantitative data and, and quantitative reasoning. Um, so what I'm part of is the core mission of psychology is to promote evidence-based um, understandings of human behavior. Um, and I'm just carrying on what psychology has been about for a hundred years in that sense. Uh, you know, in some ways we're victims of our own success, but psychology is very attractive to people outside of academia, outside of science. Um, and we need to be all the more forceful then in promoting the evidence-based version of psychology. And it's not that any evidence will do, it has to be rigorous evidence. Um, that is a core mission of psychology and always has been. And um, if you're at the forefront of psychology, this is what you will be presenting to the world. But this is how we understand humans, by providing empirical evidence of a high standard and rigor, uh, not any old empirical evidence and certainly not no evidence at all. Um, I think we're partway down the road. I think people in the general public are aware that evidence is better than no evidence. Where we need to go next is to explain to the world that there's different types of evidence. There's good evidence and bad evidence. And I think the signs are there that people in general culture and wider culture are beginning to 
internalize some of those principles as well. So I think we continue to go there. Well, I'm going to uh, contradict that statement with a quote from you <laughs> earlier that says science, including psychological science, might be getting worse and worse instead of better and better. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between quantity and quality in a sense. Okay, so what, what I mean by that is that um, if you look at uh, if you look at the, the, the volume of research that um, is produced annually, uh, journals are the place where research gets published, and that is an industry. It's a commercially driven industry. Uh, universities look for rankings um, because that's part of their industry. So they're looking for indicators of how much publication is happening by their staff and their researchers and how much citation of that publication is happening. All of these things are um, uh, inflationary. Um, so when I talk about psychology might be getting worse and worse, what I'm saying is that there is a sense of um, the, the, the volume of bad science is getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, um, but I think there will be a tipping point eventually. I think people will begin to uh, approach all science with a degree of caution um, because of the preponderance of bad science. Um, but I think simultaneously to that, we're becoming more conscious of this problem. Uh, the idea that, um, uh, you know, that bad science exists. There used to be a time when to say something was scientifically proven was enough. Now I think there's a much wider understanding that there's good science and bad science. Um, so that is also progressing. So maybe if, if I'm saying science or psychology is getting worse and worse, it's, it's, it's more a case that the, uh, the rigorous um, voices um, are the people arguing for rigor in psychology are becoming outnumbered to a greater degree than in the past. Um, uh, but there's greater awareness of this problem as well. Um, and so, so my book is, is, is really just one of many offerings that discusses the, the, you know, the, the crises in psychology. Um, so there's a wider awareness of these crises, even if these crises are um, you know, spreading more widely than we would like them to. I'm not sure if that rescues my, <laughs> my position. But that's kind of how I see it. It's, it, it. it's kind of a, you know, two moving parts. So as the general public becomes more aware that uh, there is bad science out there, uh, they generally will not look to academic journals like academics will look for. Um, and I know in, amongst the general public, now there's a greater awareness that some of these really prestigious academic journals have, like you say, been publishing uh, bad science. So it seems to me there'd be a need amongst the general public for a resource that's not the journals that, is, uh, that they can trust. Yes. Um it, it, it is certainly not uh, without problems. Um, this, uh, you know, greater awareness of the problem about science itself opens the door to all sorts of um, difficult uh, cultural trends. 
so there is the general skepticism towards science. So if you look at something like climate change, you know, there is a huge political voice around the idea that, well, you cannot trust the science. Um, and that has currency in a way in which we would, we would be concerned about, um, or something like vaccination, uh, where people say you can't trust the scientists because their science is bad science. You know, we, we, we are at risk of creating a world where nobody trusts any kind of evidence or any kind of research, and that almost undoes the scientific revolution. We nearly go back uh, to, the, um, to, the, to the 15th and 16th centuries when, when important rich people uh, decided what was factual and what wasn't, and told the world, and we all followed the teachings um, as disciples of knowledge rather than consumers of knowledge, or producers of knowledge for that matter. So I do think we have, um, uh, we have that risk. Uh, it's hard to see what the alternative will be. The, the cliche is that, well, if you have greater scientific literacy in the general population, so if you teach people at an early age um, uh, what science is and how it works, um, then you'll kind of inoculate culture against this problem of, uh, um, of, 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 of science skepticism or anti-science skepticism. I think there's probably something in that, uh, but the question is how do you get that even into the system? How do you get an agreement that that needs to be done? Because that's a huge um, uh, undertaking uh, to suggest. And uh, every every academic area, the historians say that we should teach history to children. They are the, the linguists say we should make all the children multilingual. Um, every every academic observer has their own case make of so why their fields need to be part of an overhaul of early education and change society uh, so that everybody is more aware of their field. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. Well, you bring up climate change and I know uh, nasal outbreaks are a really hot topic currently. So that, so that really adds credence to uh, publishing good science. Yes, and uh, you know the issue of vaccination in particular is, um, excuse me, is a is um, it's psychologically interesting because almost as soon as vaccinations were invented, there was vaccination skepticism, um, and um, you know the 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 idea that people might be skeptical of the scientific explanation for things it, it's not entirely modern. You know there is a there's a trend in society. For many years that people are they at least approach scientists with a certain degree of caution um but yes i mean in practical terms uh you know some of these um you know it, it is not beyond the uh the range of possibilities that human society might destroy itself uh and and i think we we have all gone through these kind of um uh, generations and in my generation growing up it was nuclear war and what have you and this generation, they're, they're looking at climate change. Um, but there may be disease pandemics or, or, or just, uh, um, uh, you know, even political collapse. It's a more complex form of self-destruction. But, you know, if we continue to organize our democracies in a way that facilitates social chaos and um, that, that, that breeds xenophobia rather than addresses it, um, you know, it, it could be the case that society destroys itself politically. 
so, um, uh, you know, we do need to be careful and we do need to consider these possibilities. We shouldn't assume human perfection, uh, even in the long term. Um, and, and, and people perhaps should be more conscious of the real life consequences of these, uh, of these types of issues and disease inoculation and vaccination. Uh, is, a, is a very clear example of, uh, of, of a problem that isn't a problem when it's solved, but only becomes a problem when people, you know, dispense with the solution and allow it to come back. And um, uh, scientific literacy is, uh, is part of the answer to that. Um, absolutely. Well, Brian, I will disclose that my default emotion mm. is anger. And so <laughs> what you're saying <laughs> angers me, but I'm also experiencing quite a bit of fear because what you're saying is also quite frightening. Um, well, uh, yes, and I suppose I'm, I'm kind of speaking off the top of my head uh, on some of these um, uh, ideas in a way because, uh, because they're quite wide-ranging. They're, uh, um, they're quite profound and existential. Uh, but this is why I think, uh, and I don't want to kind of um, steer this back to my own book, for example, but this is why I think uh, uh, science is so important um, and scientific psychology as a subset of science is important um, because we benefit from more science rather than less. When science is in trouble, we need more rigor rather than less rigor. We need more uh, care rather than less care. Uh, we need to give it more time rather than less. And I would be very fearful that as a society, we would, um, we, would, we would become impatient with our social problems and the inability of science to solve everything by, by leaving science behind, by deciding that other things are more important. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that's necessary, but um, uh, I don't think that's wise, should I say. Uh, uh, but nor do I think it's necessary. Uh, I think we can, as scientists, advocate for good science and uh, show people the way. But of course, uh, it's a cliche. The first thing we need to do is get our own house in order and make sure that we are, the science that we do is actually something we will be happy uh, to, uh, to to present to the world and and to and stand over and be proud of. Well put. Uh, so you've got your book out. It's been out for a, a number of months now. What's up next for you? What's your next project? Yeah, um, there are a couple of um, uh, uh, things I'm looking at, but uh, I'm uh, very conscious of uh, uh, the, the issue about individual differences, the issue about human variability, human diversity. Um, uh, an understanding of that is something I would like to I would like to address. So, for example, uh, the concept of um, accounting for variability, accounting for variance. A lot of the problems um, in lay psychology, to put it in those terms, is the assumption that one size fits all. Um, or psychology is the study of the individual. And the evidence suggests that when we look at people as individuals, we understand the population better. Uh, so, uh, it's a big challenge for psychologists to explain individual differences. And only a minority of psychologists really look at that. Most psychologists could still look at humanity as, as, a, as a general thing and will look at cognition or look at social behavior 
or look at biological development um, in humans in general. Uh, only a small subset of psychologists look at individual differences within humanity. I would like to look at that, not least because it is something that is subject to good and bad science. And when you look at the way in which social attitudes or attitudes within culture about human beings and why they are the way they are, how that translates into social problems is something that uh, I think is important to look at. So if you look at the rise of populism or the rise in xenophobia or the stereotyping of minorities, all of these are lay psychological theory. And how do we get these theories and what does the science say about them? I'd like to bridge that gap in some way. So I'd like to look at something that looks at, that explains to a wide audience how it is we know um, that, or what it is we know about human diversity and what the evidence is for diversity. And indeed, some of our earlier discussion about why diversity is important in evolutionary terms. I think there's something there. That's, a, that's quite a, a blue skies uh, summary of, uh, of what I'm looking at. But I, I really, um, I think that's a, an important um, area of understanding that I would like to, to, to support and promote. Uh, yeah, that is sounds very fascinating to unpack and see what are the hmm. different uh, machinations and uh, influences yeah. that, that make that happen. And, and and at all times, I'm as interested in the in those machinations. How does the science industry work, and how do we come to our current understanding? So, if you look at something like race um, and behavior. Uh, there are a lot of stereotypes about uh, how different races behave. Um, and the scientists will tell you, well, you can't even define race that way. You, and you certainly can't make predictions about behavior that way. But within science, there are a lot of what appear to be sophisticated theories that amount to more or less the same thing, race differences and different human attributes. Uh, I'm interested in, as, as interested in how cultural stereotypes and cultural ideas feed scientific review and shape the end product of science uh, that lead us to um, uh, a world where we constantly churn out bad science about things that is biased in favor of cultural stereotypes rather than truly testing them. And uh, there's a huge issue there. And there's, uh, a second example would be gender differences. There's a huge controversy in gender differences research uh, about why it is that so much research supports gender stereotypes that clearly are not um, viable. Um, but the research industry turns out studies that conform to prior assumptions rather than test those assumptions. And uh, I think that's part of the problem and therefore part of any discussion. Well, well, I look forward to your next production of work and uh, uh, the effect that it'll have on the community uh, and in psychology, especially, because that's where there's a lot of need to be changed, as, as you've identified. Yes. Uh, psychology uh, overlaps with a lot of areas, and the crisis in psychology, as it is commonly referred to in terms of, say, replication and replicability of research, it's not 
exclusive to psychology and it cuts across social sciences and public health medicine and epidemiology and other areas of medicine, including um, uh, genetics and, 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 and pathology. There's a lot of areas of research where replication and replicability um, is, is, is controversial. Uh, so psychology can be, if you like, um, uh, ahead of the pack in dealing with a lot of these issues, because a lot of these issues are structural and they relate to professional groups and norms in scientific publication, the norms of academic career progression, um, these kind of um, uh, mundane um, uh, you know, technicalities combined to create big problems. Um, uh, and psychology, I would argue, is actually very um, attentive to this now. And uh, by sorting out these problems, these problems occur across the sciences um, and across especially um, sciences that deal with human behavior or human well-being, including the medical sciences. Uh, so uh, I think we can make a contribution there by getting psychology's crises sorted out. Um, we can make a big contribution outside of psychology, too. Well, I hope that comes to fruition. That would be so helpful just for humanity in general. Thank you, Brian, for taking the time and sharing your knowledge. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks will be uh, shocked and maybe a little bit frightened about what's going on in the science world, but I think you're also giving us hope that uh, change may be afoot. Well, thank you. I hope that's the case. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm proud to make a contribution, but there's so many people looking at this and so many people making important contributions. Um, I'm optimistic for the future. Well, it would seem that if science is going to weed out the bad and fraudulent psychological scientists, we'll need more people like Brian standing up to call out their harmful ways and to change the way research, review, and publication processes operate so that patients are not the downstream victims of upstream egos and profiteering. Thank you, Brian, for taking the time to share how psychology is in crisis. If you would like to support the podcast, you can visit one of the podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean and subscribe or leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly donor. Visit patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron. If you would like counseling support for your own experience with medical error or living with chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening and do something nice for yourself today.